to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today I am talking to somebody that you've about a subject that you've probably never heard of or haven't heard much of, and the subject is permaculture. And my guest today is Ryan Harb, who is a certified permaculture designer. He's a local food consultant for the schools and getting good food into the into our schools and I can't wait to talk to him some more about that and he is also um, a speaker and an innovator and if after the show that you'd like this I'd like to have him come and talk to one of your conferences I'm sure he would happily make himself available to you so welcome Ryan thank you Daryl it's nice to be here I think this is going to be so much fun today. Ryan, you are among one of the newest generation out there. Mm. How did you get interested in gardening, and how did you get interested in permaculture especially? Yeah, great question. So I got started as a 22-year-old graduating from college in 2008. It was the time of the recession, and I was applying for jobs in uh, a lot of the, the business field. And I had a pretty good GPA. I thought I was going to land a job pretty easy. And every single job that I applied for, I actually got rejected from. And so it was a pretty Aww. sad time. I was trying to figure out, well, you know, nobody wants me. I was, you know, a little, a little down. And I was also, at the time, kind of awakening, I would say. And I was really trying to figure out what is it that I could do as one person, as one individual in the world that can help make this world a better place. And so even those companies that I was applying to that I, I thought I wanted to work for, I realized that they didn't even really line up with, you know, my values and my ethics. So I was really trying to find out, well, are there any companies out there and who, who would I want to work for in this world if I, if I could snap my fingers and have everything my way? And so I, I was on a path. I was learning at that time, and I decided that I needed to keep learning. So I actually went back to school. Um, I stayed at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and I enrolled in a program. It was a master's program, and it was called Green Building. And it was focused more on the building side and energy efficiency and how to take our whole building infrastructure in the country and transform it to um, be using less fossil fuels and to have – um, more efficiency. So it's within that program that I actually started learning about sustainability and environmentalism, and I took a class in permaculture, and I actually got hooked um, through that. So it was right around the time, 23, that I heard someone come in, give a talk about permaculture. It piqued my interest, and that kind of started me on, on the permaculture path that I've been on for the past seven years. So, you, had you ever gardened before you took the permaculture class? Yeah, I started, well, probably once or one year, two years before that. I had planted a little uh, veggie garden, and I knew nothing about soil at that time. So, I planted things in the ground, and as most of the pride listeners out there who know about gardening, soil is the foundation, you know, for everything. you got to have good soil sure. health. Um, even if you have the best seeds. So I, you know, put some seeds in, got some squash. They started to grow, but they didn't really yield much. So that, you know, led me to try to investigate, well, what, what is it? What do they need? How can, how can this garden be better the next year? And that's, that was my only experience gardening before I took a permaculture class. Ah, so you came into it really late in life, and I, I'm, I'm fascinated yeah. that you came into it from, you know, not even from a, a school garden 
program or anything like that because right. uh, several of my guests now have said that the, there are a number of schools, and, of course, I think you started the large one over at UMass um, in Amherst. Uh, several colleges were ha- having spaces available for students to garden in. And yeah. so you didn't you didn't start really from that direction. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So you got intrigued by permaculture, and I guess we ought to start by telling people what is permaculture. Yeah. So that's a question I get a lot. What is permaculture? And it's one of those things where I I don't, and probably most people don't have a short elevator definition of what it is, because what it is really is trying to take a look at what we have in our world right now, and you can tell by looking at the media and social media, reading the newspaper, that there's a lot of stuff going on in our world that's not so good right now, having to do with the environment, having to do with social inequities. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff that needs fixing in the world. So that, that's what kind of got the permaculture movement started, is looking at our environment, looking at the world in which we live in, and examining that in order to continue to live here on this planet, we need to change, change our ways. We need to be living in a more sustainable way. We need to have a sustainable culture, and we need to have sustainable agriculture. So that's really what permaculture means. Um, the, the word permaculture is a portmanteau. So it's a combination of two words, permanent and agriculture. And permanent doesn't mean not changing. Permanent really means being able to continue on, onward sustainably indefinitely. And agriculture is the act of growing food and cultivating the land and um, livestock. So being able to kind of combine those two, permanent and agriculture, is where you get permaculture. But it also incorporates people in it. It's not just about tending the land and growing food and uh, raising animals. It's really about how do we live as a society in a way that's going to continue to take care of the planet and to take care of other people. So permaculture is grounded in these three ethics, um, earth care, care for the earth, people care, care for other people, and fair share, which means share of surplus. So sharing your time, your energy, your food, if you have extra of that, being able to just help out and donate, you know, when you have that surplus to help other people. I'm a big advocate. Yeah, I'm a big advocate of giving people, giving food, plant a little extra, or if you have happen to have extra, give it away. Give it to a food bank. Give it to your neighbor who's maybe too old to garden themselves anymore. There's always so much need in the world, and there is so much waste of food. Yeah. Does food right. waste make you as crazy as it makes me? <laughs> I, I have such a hard time throwing away things. Um, food waste, and, you know, if there's any food going bad, I'll try to just cut off the smallest piece of it that might be bad. Um, but bad means just it goes in the compost and turns into a, a resource, good soil for growing more food. So, you know, if, as long as we take that food waste and we turn that waste into a resource, food will go bad sometimes, but you can turn that into soil and just have it be a cyclical process. Yeah, isn't it amazing how food gets to the back of the refrigerator sometimes and you don't <laughs> find it until it's turned green? <laughs> oh, I know. Yep. <laughs> Fortunately, I have chickens for the not so not so nasty stuff, and big compost mm-hmm. pile for the nasty stuff. But yeah. but we waste so much food, 
And I noticed that one of the things, and we, we're going to talk a little bit more about this in Amherst, um, is that you're take, taking all the dining hall waste and composting it. Is that right? That's right, yep. That's Getting a huge right amount. Getting right back in there. Yeah. Yeah. That's a huge amount of waste. And we can all do that on a smaller bit. Now, one of the things that you have done, and I wanted to toot your horn a little bit, is that you were a campus champion of change in 2012. And that means that you're the top college project in the country that's changing the world for the better. Now, how did that come about? Mm -hmm. And and did you go and talk to President Obama? Yeah, I'll I'll get to that part. Okay. um, Back back in 2010, that's when I graduated from my master's program in Green Building. And at that point, I was again, now two years later, looking for another job. And this time, I didn't have to look so far. I was actually able to create a job for myself as the first sustainability manager for the UMass Amherst Dining Services. And they hired me first part-time, and it turned into a full-time, and then actually turned into an entire department within two years. My uh, mission was to take one quarter of an acre, a grass lawn, that was located outside of one of the dining halls on campus, and to transform it with students, with faculty, with staff, into a demonstration permaculture garden to showcase how we can grow food anywhere. We can do it right on campus. We can do it right outside, right outside of the dining hall and have that food go into the dining hall and be eaten by students. So it was that project that actually started, I would say, my whole career and gave me my first permaculture project. It was very high profile, and it was very successful. It actually led to us going to the White House and meeting the president in 2012. That's pretty cool. I'm proud of you, Ryan. And and oh, how many you, people Dara. did you, you're welcome, how many people did you have working with you? I assume that oh you gosh. were the, the mastermind, but then you, I assume, had to delegate to a number of people to get the whole thing done? Yeah, was, how did that come about? Poor. I was the coordinator, so my job was to make sure it happened. I was kind of the bridge, the communicator between all parties. So my job was to try to get people excited about it and try to get people to want to come out and to ask questions like, what is permaculture? And I would tell them and try to get them excited and inspired. And then I would say, well, really, if you want to know, the best way to do that is to just come out and see it in action and to be a part of it. So I spoke in classes all over campus. This is a 25,000-student campus. So it was a lot of of classes that I spoke in, and I put together a team of eight students who were the permaculture committee. And so it was the nine of us, myself, and eight core students who our job was to just facilitate this process and try to get more people involved. So over the course of the very first year, we had over 1,500 volunteers show up. That wasn't one day. That was over the whole year, but it was a consistent 20, 30 people many days every single week. And it was really inspiring to see that many people get involved and get their hands in the dirt and actually be part of a uh, project on their campus that was making their college a better place. That's a lot better than a lot of us in the 60s did. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You made made a a difference instead of, Mm -hmm. I I still shudder to think of what happened on some of the college campuses when I was in school. Oh, so you got to, you 
you made a job for yourself or they were looking for a job or you did you walk into the the office of the the food services people and say hey we can be doing this better let me help you yeah basically no, that's <laughs> i've actually never had a job since well probably since college that i haven't created myself and that's not to tell my own horn at all it's just that i've actually struggled with this i i <laughs> tell my wife this all the time i i don't fit in a box i like have never been able to just take a job that's already created because I feel like with the rapidly changing world that we live in, a lot of the jobs that are needed to solve the big issues in the world are not created yet. We have to be innovators. We need more people who are just seeing a problem and then can see, you know, if I do this, this, and this, it will turn it into a solution that we can make this better. In order to do that, that needs a new job with a different title that maybe isn't already in existence. Or maybe it's going into a job and then just changing the responsibilities a little bit. Um, you know, it's not to say all the jobs are not working in the world. It's just that there are problems, and in order to solve them, we need to be thinking outside of the box, and I'm kind of that outside-of-the-box type of person. That is the kind of people that we need in the world. We need more Ryan Harbs, I think. No. Um, we're going to have to take a little break right now. But I want When we come back, I'd like to talk to you some more about this project that you did at UMass. So we'll be right back after this. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm talking today with Ryan Harbin. We're talking permaculture, and we've been talking about how Ryan got started, and Ryan won a really special award for the UMass Permaculture Initiative. So let's talk some more about that. Ryan, shall we? Sure. Sure. So, so you, you got yeah. these people all together, and then what did you do? So the first thing we did was we took a look at our site. It was a quarter of an acre. It was outside one of the dining halls on campus. And it was a really unique location because it was pretty much not right in the center of campus, but pretty close. So this is a prime piece of real estate. This is a very big, uh, quote, risk for the university to actually take a step like this and to actually say, we're going to devote this piece of land into a garden. And they had, you know, abs- you know no sure thing that it was going to be successful. They really put a lot of trust in me and this idea. So at that point, it was really a, um, it was just kind of an opportunity to really prove prove to them that this could work and to build some trust. 
So the first thing we did was to build trust, and we did that by just making ourselves really professional and to communicate really openly and honestly with everybody. So it was a lot of communication, a lot of relationship building at the very beginning. Want me to keep going? Yeah, sure. Um, okay. So you got you got the trust, you got the organization, yep. and I assume that being a university, you had to get a lot of that on paper. Right. Yep. So we did that. We I wrote a proposal. I said that these are what our steps are going to be. This is step one. This is when we're going to do this part. And we broke it up into three phases to make it really easy for them to understand and for organizational purposes. So the the first stage after the project was approved was during the fall. And this mimicked the whole academic calendar. So the fall months being September, October, November. During that phase, we were going to be building soil. So we were going to increase our soil health and add a layer of compost right on top of the grass lawn. And on top of that, do a cardboard layer. And that was uh, serving as the weed barrier layer. And putting a mulch layer on the very top of that, which was wood chips. And we use that from down trees and limbs that they would, you know, use a wood chipper. So we had all mm -hmm. of this readily available uh, resources on the campus that we could essentially use for free. So the compost was from the dining commons waste. Uh, the cardboard was from all the dumpsters, uh, all the food that they truck in and, you know, recycle the boxes. And the wood chips came from campus, too. So it was all local resources to just build soil in those very beginning phase and very beginning months. That's all part of a big part of what permaculture is, isn't it? Using locally available resources rather yeah. than to truck them in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, trying to look for what we have and trying to just utilize what's readily available. And it's not going to be cardboard and compost in every place. Um, that you know, it might not be wood chips either. It's going to be really what's locally available and also what's our climate and what what are our you know needs in this area. So, you know, different processes. The sheet mulching we did works really well in Massachusetts and in the Northeast, and it might not work, you know, in the same exact way in, say, California, a west or, or down south where you are. There's different approaches um, based on different microclimates. Yeah, so one of, the, one of the big problems that many soils have is that they aerate very poorly. And some of the research that Dr. Linda Chalker-Scott has done out in Washington State suggest that the reason why um, earthworms come up and everybody finds them right underneath the cardboard was not that they were enjoying the cardboard, but they were suffocating. Mm -hmm. So I'd be interested to see whether that particular angle pans out all over the country or in, in different soil types because, well, like you did, I've started gardens using cardboard underneath or newspaper mm -hmm. underneath just because yeah. it was available and we have so many doggone weeds, you know. Mm -hmm. We hardly ever get a deep freeze down here, so things yeah. grow, you know, pretty much 12 months out of the year. Um, so you used – you. And you did something else that a lot of people don't know about, too. You didn't do something that most people do when they start a garden. Right. We did not till the soil at all. Um, we just did it all by hand, uh, aerating it with digging forks. Um, literally, that's what we had our volunteers do before we laid down the compost and layered the compost cardboard wood chips. We just aerated it by hand. And that was, one, like, two two reasons for doing that. One was... It was an intentional way to show how, you know, tilling the soil could be 
construed as um, disrupting the, the soil life in some ways, that it destroys the, the homes of some of the microorganisms sure. in the soil. And so and we wanted to just demonstrate no-till agriculture. And the only way we could do that is if we had a lot of people, because if you try to do a quarter of an acre no-tilling and aerate it by hand, it's going to drive you crazy. You'll be doing it for a couple of years probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we, we had so many volunteers. We had a campus where people are willing to get involved and want to get involved. So just those 20 or 30 people that would show up on a day, we would give them one big long line, and we would set them up with digging forks, and they would aerate the soil, and then we would go in and put the, the layering on top of it. And then we'd do another long row, and we'd do it again. So it took us probably two or three weeks to finish it. And it involved, you know, 200 people over those couple of weeks. But it was really intentional as a way to really build community and to get some hands-on education. It's one of those things we wouldn't have probably done it the same if it wasn't on a college campus. But it was very intentional because that's, that's where we were, uh, a living and learning environment. That's, and, and I like the way that you not only did you do that as a team-building exercise, but by doing all of the steps so that they could see their progress going across this quarter of an acre. That must have been a real incentive to, to them, too, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was probably really cool to see it. And they, then they would actually maybe stop working after two or three hours and go, up, go upstairs and eat, and they could actually look outside of the window and see the progress that they were having or their fellow students were having. The students could actually see students working the soil and building the soil while they're eating food. And then a year later the garden was all complete, and they were eating the food that was actually grown in that. So I think it was probably really cool for students to watch and be part of that whole process. Sure. I can, I can only imagine that it, that it would be. Um, now, what did you do after you had the, the, the not tilling, just the aerating, and then the compost, and then the cardboard, and then the wood chips? What did you do after that? Did you let it go through the whole winter? We did. We did. So we finished in November, right before the ground froze, which was, that was our deadline. We had to make sure we got it all done before then. And during the winter time, it was really let it rest. And we were going to plant into it in about six months. And by that time, some of the cardboard would be starting to decompose. But it was during the winter where we actually designed the garden. So we didn't know what we were going to plant or where we were going to plant it during the fall. We were really just going to concentrate on building the soil and start to get energy behind the project and build momentum. The winter was really about what are we going to plant, where are we going to put it, where are we going to get those plants, and putting together our whole uh, integrated design. So that was our next phase, phase two, winter months, and I would say that's December through March. And we brought together over 100 people, including faculty and students and staff, and we brought them all together in a room. It was actually in the dining commons. Uh, the dining commons put on an event and provided food for volunteers to come and help us design the garden and to give us ideas on what we should plant and where it should go. So we had a four-hour community design workshop or a design charrette and had groups make many different designs, present their designs to each other, and then give us all those designs, and our job was to put together one cumulative design based on the 40 different designs that were produced in that day. Wow, you're a glutton for punishment, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> that, was a, that was a hard process to, to do that, but it was, again, really intentional in just having it be a project that we knew in order for it to be successful, the campus had to have ownership toward it. It 
couldn't just sure. be myself. It couldn't be the eight students. It had to be faculty who were giving us feedback along the way, saying, hey, I want you to plant this. And we would say, well, come to our design workshop. We want to hear those ideas and put them on paper so we remember them so we can try to incorporate it. And same thing yeah. with some How other did you get other so students. smart? <laughs> How did you get so smart? <laughs> I've had great, great mentors. I've studied with a lot of really fantastic people who have um, I always say to people, I don't. I really don't invent new things at all. What I do is I try to pick and choose the best ideas that I see from people who are doing it all over the world, and I just try to pull those ideas and bring them back to my local community and try to replicate and mimic them, and that's the best thing that I can do. Well, well, it obviously works for you. I was wondering after when I was listening to your TEDx talk um, why you did it the way you did with the design, you know, most community gardens get started first with getting the community together and then getting a plan, you know, getting the space, getting a plan for that and before they turn the first bit of dirt. And so now what you did in that order makes perfect sense. Yeah. So then what was the next step? We quite a bit, yeah. three minutes in this section. Sure, sure. So at, at that point, it's, um, we've finished the design probably around March, April, and that was right when the snow was finally leaving for the year. And our job was over the next two to three months, start to plant everything and start to, once we had that final design, mark out where the pathways are because we wanted to have it be a community space where people can walk through, you know, two people uh -huh. side by side. Um, we put different signs up to uh, denote the different areas. We had different themes in the different areas. And so we had beds, we had signs, we had uh, pathways, we put stakes in the ground to mark where they go, and we started raking off the wood chips and, you know, putting those into the pathways and putting a little bit more compost into the, the growing beds and started to bring in all the plants. And because it was a quarter of an acre and we were planting over 200 different species, it took a couple of months for all of us to put all the different plants and the designs in. It wasn't just, a, you know, a big, many different rows all at once. It was really complicated. There was a lot of different things all happening in a small space. So we, we put a lot of time, effort, and put a lot of uh, energy into it, and we planted it probably by July. We were all done. Wow. So when you say 200 species, what, are, what all was involved in that? I think we got enough time before the break. Yeah, I can, yeah, I'll, I'll share more about that. But we kind of the, you know, overall theme was we had one, one part was a vegetable section. We planted probably about 25, 30 different uh, types of vegetable crops. Then uh -huh. we also had fruit trees. We planted probably five or ten different fruit tree crops. These were small, like, dwarf fruit trees. Mm -hmm. And then we had a, a shade section, which was our woodland edge. We planted shade-loving shade crops. We also had a culinary and medicinal herb section. That was a lot of culinary herbs for the, the chefs to come outside to harvest. And then our probably most complicated section was the edible forest garden. And that's where we probably had 50 to 100 different species just in that one section. And those are the fruit trees, um, the berry bushes, the perennial vegetables, uh, herbs. We had kind of everything working together in that really permaculture-esque ecosystem. Wow. I, I was wondering how, 
I was wondering if you had done that because that wasn't really clear in what I saw of the TED Talk. And I only found two out of three, I guess, upcoming videos of, of some of it. So when we come back from the break, I'd like to talk to you about particularly about the food forest because I think a lot of people go into that aspect of it or think about that if they think about permaculture at all. So we'll be right back after the break. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties, track and record your garden with photos and notes, share on Facebook and Twitter, and so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get Homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren. On Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and today we're talking to Ryan Harb, who is a permaculture designer and an innovator, and we've been talking about the UMass Permaculture Initiative. So, and right before the break, you mentioned the food forest. Tell people a little bit more about it, if you will, please. Sure. So the, the food forest, that was our fifth part. It was probably maybe a quarter of our design. And in the food forest, we were really trying to demonstrate how we can grow a lot of different crops, and a lot of these are perennial crops, all within a really small amount of space, and really demonstrate this multi-layering system. And so a forest garden, really the, the whole methodology behind it is to mimic the ecosystem of a forest. So when, for instance, I'm here in Massachusetts, when I walk through a forest, um, you know, I'll see some big tall trees, might be a pine forest, so I'll look up and I'll see the very tall canopy layer, and underneath that canopy layer, there's a small, smaller tree layer, those might be, you know, 15 or 20 foot tall trees, and under that layer, there's a shrub layer, and under that layer, there's an herbaceous layer, and finally, you get to kind of the ground layer, you have the ground covers, and then you'll see vines growing up, so there's all these different layers that are kind of growing all within the same space. And in some ways, in our, maybe I'll admit my own human mind, it looks a little chaotic or it looks a little disorganized. 
because it doesn't look like the ecosystems that we create, which are the more of the straight row crops and the monocultures that you think of with um, big agriculture. So a forest garden is kind of the opposite of that. It's really trying to get rid of the, the whole man-made all row crops and to mimic the structure and function of a natural and healthy ecosystem, a forest ecosystem. So a forest garden is gardening like a forest. So when you think of the same exact model I just said, you can put in a tall tree in a forest garden, which might be a big nut tree or a big fruit tree that might get 40 or 50 feet tall, and that would be your canopy layer. And under that, you might have a, a small or dwarf fruit tree, and that could be an Asian pear or a peach or an apple. Those are some things that we grow up here in Massachusetts. And a shrub layer could be more of the, the layer under that. It could be a, a hazelnut bush or a, a filibert bush. So these are all kind of edible species that I'm talking about. This is the edible forest garden. And then you could have kind of the, uh, underneath that the herbaceous layer, and that's where some of the perennial vegetables will come in. And I'll talk about some of those after. And then you can have your ground covers, and those could be strawberries, or it could be a white clover, or it could be a bird's foot tree foil. Um, there's all these different ground covers that we can grow, and that's really just a protective layer for the soil to make sure it's not there. And you can have vines growing up some of those things, too. And those could be your grapes, or that could be um, some other, you know, climbing fruit that we have up here. So you can grow a lot in a very small amount of area, and it might be a little bit more chaotic and a little bit more confusing, but what it does do is it mimics how a natural, healthy ecosystem functions and how it looks. I remember when I was a kid, up at summer camp, they used to take us for hikes out in the woods, and I remember very vividly exactly what you're talking about um, with the taller nut trees and pine trees. Most of the nuts were not particularly edible for people, but they served the wildlife. And what I remember most about that is walking through and picking blueberries. They were just growing. Nobody had planted them there. They just grew as part of this forest. And now, a lot of people are probably going to say, but yeah, but what about the shade? What about the shade? What can you tell yeah. people about that? I can say that the, the shade will definitely be a factor. Um, in the very first years when you're putting in the trees, they're not going to be probably very big. So in those initial years when you're starting a forest garden, you can plant your vegetable crops that need full sun, and they're going to be able to get that. And it's just as the ecosystem matures, that's when you swap out and maybe stop planting some of those sun-loving and you put in more of the shade-tolerant plants. So the shade is a, a good thing. Shade, I know I like shade in the hot summer months and be able to sit underneath a nice tree um, to be able to read a book or do that. So shade is a great mm -hmm. thing, I think, in ecosystems. Now, do you plan, have you thought that far into the future about what will happen when the shade starts covering more and more? Are you going to <laughs> turn more of that garden into a food forest? Or yeah, so I, I think, yeah, in certain parts of it, we have uh, some of those taller species that will cast shade, and in those areas, it might begin to get less productive on the understory, but more of uh, the productivity will happen in the canopy layer. So at that time, you'll have the, the nuts and the fruits really start to uh, to be bearing, and that's where you'll be getting a majority of the, the food from is kind of that top layer. And then underneath, um, what's great about it is in these ecosystems, it might actually start to become lower maintenance at that point. 
because sure. really a lot of the maintenance in our agriculture systems is once you get, you know, plants in the ground, you have to water them, you kind of have to baby them because the annuals, their whole job is to produce food during that one year. So they need mm-hmm. a lot of care, they need a lot of love, a lot of water, and then a lot of harvesting when they're ready. So the idea with uh, forest garden and with kind of permaculture systems is once they get established, and this is not right away, this is going to be potentially five years or ten years down the line, once they really start to get mature, they can start to become lower maintenance systems. And that's sort of the vision that we're, we're striving for is to put in these different species to have them really mature, to have the roots develop, to have them be really healthy plants. And then at that time, you're not going to need too much care. It just might need a little bit of pruning back or a little bit of trimming to keep them, you know, where we want them to be. And is this going to be all taken care of by the students, or are the maintenance people going to love you for it? <laughs> so we, we had conversations with the maintenance people. We wanted them to love us. We, we did not want to have this be something that was going to be a nightmare in the future for them or something that they're going to have to, um, you know, care for and develop a whole other person or have it become something out of their budget that they have to factor in. That was one of the reasons not to do it, and that was one of the things we had to build trust in relationships at the beginning. So the dining services committed to taking care of these gardens by hiring their own permaculture manager, their own sustainability manager for the long term. So right, right. now, I'm not working there anymore as a full-time. I've actually passed the project off, and there's another uh, wonderful person. Her name is Lily Israel, and she's the uh, manager of the gardens right now. So there's actually more than one at UMass. It was so success- successful that they actually allowed us to plant three more on the campus. Wow. That's really cool. What was the most successful part of the initiative? Was that getting the other parts of the garden doing or, or community? Or what, what, what do you think it was? Yeah, there's definitely a few different parts. Um, probably the, the piece that I'm personally the most excited about, the most um, that I think was most successful, is two of them. Um, one of them is just how we brought people together. And it was about building community, and it was about people uh, building relationships, and for different people on campus who don't normally talk together or don't interact with this project, it was so interdisciplinary that it brought so many different people together that we had nutritionists and we had food science, but we also had landscape architecture. We also had business students, you know, doing marketing for the project. We had uh, people who are just interested in the whole gamma, you know, who came out and have done research at this garden. So it brought people together, and that was something I'm really proud of. The other thing, probably the most successful piece kind of on a grander scale, or if you kind of take a step back and look at what, what did this garden actually do, I think what it did was shift, shift people's mindsets of where food can grow and where our food comes from and who can grow our food. And for students to be participating in a project and growing food locally right on, right on our campus, it brought more people into the discussion about where is our food coming from and where is the dining services at UMass sourcing the other food that they serve. So the kind of a quick fact about UMass Amherst, their dining services is the largest dining services for a single campus in the entire country, which most people don't know about, is they they actually have about a $28 million food and beverage budget. They serve 19,000 people on the meal plan, this is massive. It's like five and a half million meals per year. So wow. the amount the amount of food that we grew in our one little quarter of an acre garden was so so small in comparison to the food that they actually serve. 
So we did not make a huge dent in the actual amount of food or the amount of food going into their cafeteria was very small. But what it did do was ask questions, and it got more people involved to put a little bit more pressure and to ask for transparency and say, how much of your food is coming from local farmers? And where, where is our food coming from? So that launched into this entire initiative where the dining services over the past five years since this initial permaculture garden project, they've been able to shift probably about $2 million of their budget from, you know, farms that far, far away that we don't know, you know, their growing practices to actually food being grown by farmers within a 250-mile radius of the campus. So it's a huge amount, a huge commitment that they've made to local food sourcing since this garden happened, and that's what I'm really most proud of about this project. That is wonderful. Gee, how, much, how big a carbon footprint is that saving? That, that's, oh, my gosh. Are you it's, not yeah, having I, to truck all this stuff that. in from so far? Yeah. And, and i gotta, I got to think that, you know, I know a little bit about the area, that with it, with most of Massachusetts being urbanized, that they had to look really long and hard at food coming locally versus food mm -hmm. that is grown in cheap land in the Midwest. That's right. a really big commitment. Yeah, yeah, it is. And you made it work. Yeah, they, I would say I, I helped start the discussion with a lot of other people. We That's what it was. The permaculture garden, more than anything, was a conversation starter. It brought people in to just ask questions to really get involved in their food system at their university. And what that did, too, was it also spread to other universities across the country. Um, I, I don't know exactly how many campuses have contacted me, but it's been dozens of campuses. And we actually held a conference after this initial garden got built for two years. We had a Permaculture Your Campus conference for people all across the country who wanted to do what we did at UMass and transform a grass lawn on their campus and have students at their campus get involved in their local food discussion of where, where is their food service sourcing their food from. And it, it was a movement, you know, and it's still out there. And people are doing it across the country at colleges. And if anyone sure. is a listener at a college um, and you're not doing it, you can get involved. You can really start one of these on your campus. Wow. I, I, I know I hear it um, from UGA. The students there are very, very interested in, in food and where it's coming from and in growing some, and they've got a great campus initiative to grow food both for um, themselves and for a huge amount to local food banks, which I think is also another really cool part of this whole thing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely sharing and giving and making a difference in the community. We yeah. don't really have enough time to get into your latest stuff before the break, so let's get a little bit short here, and then we'll, we'll have a little bit extra time when we come back. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. It's not just your garden. It's the way you live. And there's so much to know. But you have help. Bonnie Plants. Now with Bonnie's app, Homegrown, you can learn about veggie and herb varieties. 
track and record your garden with photos and notes? Share on Facebook and Twitter? And so much more. How'd you ever grow without it? Get homegrown with Bonnie Plants for iPhone and Android. The more you know, the better you can grow with Bonnie. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm talking today with Ryan Harb about the permaculture initiative he started at UMass. That was your first job out of school. Um, yep. And then what you, you got them all excited in local food sourcing, and that became your second career, didn't it? It did. It did. So, you know, once I was talking about before the break, the permaculture, your campus conference. And at mm-hmm. that point, I, we were just getting so many inquiries from people all over the country, and especially after we won the White House Award, we got named the top university project in the country that's changing the world for the better. And at that point, it was just, oh, my gosh, they, we, were, we were in our glory. We were just so happy at that for being recognized. And we, it wasn't really about being recognized more than it was about spreading the message of what this was all sure. about and why we were doing it. And to have that publicity for a project, for any project, if any, you know, person is running a project out there and you get that sort of attention, it can just help bring it to the next level. And so that, that's where we just tried to go from there. Um, for me personally, I, I was getting a lot of calls to go elsewhere and to either speak at a conference, which is uh, something I do now, speaking at conferences or universities. Um, I was getting that a lot, and I was having a lot of trouble balancing that with having a full-time job at, at the university. So after three years, which is what I wrote in my initial proposal to UMass um, back in 2010, I said, this project needs a commitment from myself, and it needs a commitment from the university for three years in order for it to be successful. And if either party were to back out before then, its likelihood of being successful long-term significantly decreases. So I I said, I will give everything to this project for three years, and at that point we should reassess and see where things are. So after three years, it had been so successful, and there were people coming up who could actually do the job that I was doing. Um, I decided to to leave to have them become leaders of the initiative. So at this point, it's a completely uh, amazing sustainability department that takes care of the permaculture gardens and also the local food initiative. And I have a small consulting business where I'm doing permaculture speaking and designing and also local food sourcing for schools and colleges um, and different institutions. So that's what I do now. Do you have a favorite of, all, of those new hats that you're wearing? Oh, I'm a, probably a multifaceted person. That's how I'll describe myself right now. Um, I like to do a lot of different things. I, 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 my life has always been that way where, um, you know, if I'm doing just one thing, something else catches my attention, I, I want to be able to explore that. So sure. I, I love being able to do gardens. I love being able to do permaculture. And I've done them at colleges. I've done them at K-12 schools. And most recently I'm doing a permaculture garden at a uh, church, at a congregational church here in Massachusetts. Great. And that's very new for me. Um, so that, that's something where the church is converting a grass lawn right outside of the church into a permaculture demonstration garden to try to involve more people and get um, more people involved in the local community. 
So that's that's one hat that I wear right now, and I'm pretty excited about that project. That's wonderful. I, we've got a lot of local churches now that are growing food and, and mostly to give back to the community. I don't think yeah. any of them have done have started permaculture. Though our local master gardener uh, organization now has a food forest growing. They've got a lot of fruit and nut trees planted. Now right. you're and you're doing something um, with the heavily into the local school system or a, a, yeah. a school system or several school systems there. Can you tell yep. us about that? Yeah, and that's the other part. So the permaculture at a church is one project I'm doing right now. I'm excited about that, but I'm also excited about trying to get this food, the food from our local farmers in this area, into the bellies of our students. Um, so we have a lot of schools. Massachusetts is loaded with them. Probably most places are but especially colleges, universities, where I am um, in the Amherst area and also in the Boston area. And there's also, you know, schools in Connecticut. So I'm, I'm on the western part of Massachusetts. I'm kind of in between Boston and Connecticut. So I have this very, um, you know, radius where I can visit lots of different schools. And my objective right now is to try to just help schools that are trying to source locally. They're trying to get local, fresh, nutritious food into their kids' bellies. Um, my job is to help them do that and connect them with the different farmers that are out there and to connect them uh, with the different uh, producers that can help supply them with that food. Boy, that's a job and a half in itself, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's, I can, I'll, I'll say one part of just like how, to, how schools, you know, initially might contact me. Um, they will, you know, say, hey, I've, you know, we want to source more local food. Can you help us? And for really the first place to start is, you know, how, how are you doing right now? What's your current, if we were to look at you and do kind of a local food audit, how much of the food right now are you sourcing locally? How much of that is coming from within your state, within, say, Massachusetts, and how much of that is coming within New England? And when you actually look at it and you look at schools to, you know, a larger school district or a college or university, their food and beverage budget is in the millions of dollars. So mm -hmm. it's wow, it's like, that's a lot of food. And then you say, well, how much of that is local? And it turns out that probably most of them, it's under 5% is coming locally. And we think we can do better. And a lot of schools can be doing better, and a lot of them want to, and they just don't know how. And I'm trying to work with the other innovators, the food service directors in the districts that really want to become pioneers, that want to be leaders in farm to school, and they want to go beyond 5% to, say, 10%. And that can be done within a couple of years if you really make a concerted effort. And you don't have to stop at 10. You know, within a couple of years, you can go beyond that, go to 20%. You know, and ideally, you know, the food system, the whole thing changes over time. And it's going to take time for this all to change. But, you know, within the next 10, 20 years, we could definitely be 20% could be the norm. It should be looking at 50, 60%, you know, over, over all the years. But it's going to take time for all that to happen, and that's where you know I'm on this long-term journey to try to help schools who want to do this. That is a wonderful thing. Now, you not only have to get um, commitments from the school systems, but you also have to get a commitment from the farmers to grow yeah. food in the quantities, which mm -hmm. requires the farmers' trust in the school systems not to renege exactly. on a, on a, a long-term contract or something. Yeah. So yeah. how do you how do you do that? That's right. Again, it's like the same exact thing um, as starting a garden or at, at a campus. 
the very first stage is you have to build trust and you have to build relationships and you have to start small. You know, we, we did a quarter of an acre garden and that expanded to four gardens on the campus. We couldn't start four gardens all at once. And the same thing, a university or a school isn't going to go all local all at once. They need to start with maybe ordering a little bit from a farm and to make sure it's a good relationship and the farm can reliably come every single week and supply good quality food that the university and the schools and the chefs really want and they love that quality and they love the reliability and they can build on that and you can build off that success. So I would say, you know, the, the first time you might have to work out some kinks and sometimes the, either the quality or the delivery, something goes wrong in that very first time and to not just at that point have, you know, the, the school or the chef say, okay, we're done with local food. You know, we're not going to try it anymore. That's, you know, you have to kind of be committed to it for the long term and know that things are going to have to, you know, there has to be feedback. There are going to be things that need to be changed. And, you know, it's, it's a work in progress, and you can continue to get better and to foster relationships. And over time, it's going to be the farmer can deliver. Ideally, if you get a good match, it can be perfect. It can be just like a distributor would who shows up every week on a Thursday and delivers all your canned goods and all your, you know, grocery items. A farmer can come every Tuesday and deliver all your potatoes and your cabbage and your squash and your zucchini, um, whatever the season is, to really design your menu seasonally um, to help work with the farmers. So it's, it's a commitment, and it takes a lot of education on both sides. And I always have seen myself as kind of that connector, as kind of a middle person, so to try to bring people together to make these relationships work. I think that's fantastic because... Our school food service has been in such dire trouble for so long. The kids are eating, you know, kind of non-food items so much of the time, and to get them eating really good stuff. And I know there was a lot of bad press when the first bit about um, getting healthier lunches to the kids happened, you know, when when kids were throwing out you know, tremendous amounts of fruits and vegetables, but you've been able, the chefs now have been able to overcome that in large measure, haven't they? Yeah, they have. And I'd say cooks, you know, are really, they're really trying to do this and they're really learning and some of the chefs out there are really excited and really committed to fresh and local food because they see the quality can be fantastic. You know, when you have something that's picked that doesn't have to go to, uh, say, a food processing facility or doesn't need to be, you know, preserved or doesn't wait in a warehouse for a week, but it can come directly from the farm, picked, you know, that day or the day before and goes right in and gets used. The quality is unbelievable, and it tastes great, it tastes better, and it's comparable price because it's not a middleman. So it can just work so well, and it just will take time to continue to build these relationships. But, you know, over time, I think it's it's completely going to take over, and that's my hope is to help facilitate this and have it be the way of the future. But the time to act is now. I saw that on one of your one of the things that you had posted had a new veggie pasta, and the kids were actually looking like they were going to eat it. How did that they work were, out? <laughs> it was fantastic. We we did a butternut squash, um, so it's a, a basically a vegetable spaghetti noodle, and we use butternut squash, and you can also use beet, and we used um, parsnip. And so there, there's these really colorful, you know, bright orange and red and white um, pasta noodles. And we baked them in the oven we, with a little bit of olive oil, with a little bit of garlic and salt and pepper, and I think a little bit of Parmesan cheese. 
and we roasted that and then put it into little taste testing, little uh, small vessels to give to the kids to try with their meal one day to just introduce it to them, and we asked them to give their feedback on it. And a lot of the kids really liked it. And so we, we went around and we asked them questions, we gave them a sticker, and we tried to get their feedback so that we could potentially either put it on the menu if they liked it or not. And we got an overwhelming majority of them saying, yes, I would eat this, put it on the menu. So now we've actually started putting it on the menu in Chicopee schools, which is a Chicopee public school district in western Massachusetts. That is wonderful. Oh, golly, Ryan, that, that's, just, that's just super. And you're getting the kids, um, you said you were getting the kids involved in other ways, too. Yeah, and that we're also growing a garden right outside of their school. So we got a grant. Um, last year it was from the Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare Foundation Community Garden Grant, and we got money to be able to actually put in some raised beds and help the kids actually get to plant and grow some of their food again so that they'll be more apt to try it. So students who, you know, help grow the food or help grow a, a turnip green, um, I think that was an example you told me, Daryl, sure. to have kids actually help grow it. And then once they harvest it, they're way more apt to try it. It's not as foreign. It's not as weird to try something because they actually help see it through from seed to maturity. Well, our time is almost up, and I'm going to have to get you back to talk more about this healthy food in the schools thing. But in the meantime, tell people what how people can get hold of you. Sure. Yeah, you can. I would love to hear feedback from people. Feel free to send me an email. Um, the way they do that is to go on my website. So it's uh-huh. Ryan Harb, H-A-R-B dot org, and you can go on there, and my contact information is on there. Uh, you can also just follow me on Facebook or on Twitter or send me a message. And my handle is at Ryan, R-Y-A-N, Harb, H-A-R-B. And that's the way to get a hold of me. That is simple enough. Thank you again so much for being with us. I'm sorry we're out of time, but I will get this information up on the show's Facebook page and if so that everybody can find you. And I urge you to go and look at his TED Talk. Anyway, that's all we've got time for this week. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.